This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I have a title this morning uh, that is uh, called The Making uh, of Orange Juice, or no, sorry, now I need to correct it, Making Orange Juice, and I really like that picture that Annie uh, whipped up for it, too. It's, it's rather artistic and elegant for such an unelegant and unartistic title, right? Yeah. So uh, there is a, there, this is going back in time quite a few years. Uh, so I don't know if we could say 20 plus, maybe 23 is my guess if I was going to uh, get as accurate as I could in my spiritual development. And I used to carry around a notebook and it had a, uh, one of those clear vinyl-like covers on it where you can put in your own cover sheet. But my cover sheet was a piece of notebook paper. It was like white, maybe not notebook paper, but just like white printer paper. And I had, with my pen that I always carried around with me, I would write really small uh, all the truths that God was speaking to me. And this little piece of paper, whenever I would have a new thought or a new metaphor, a new concept of explaining the kingdom of heaven to my own soul. And I would take out this sheet of paper and I would write on it. And so I would literally look at this sheet of paper every day and I, I could turn it back, you know, because there was two sides to it. I would turn it over and I would remember what God was teaching me. It was actually one of the most profound processes I've gone through. I'm visual in my learning, which is what can lead to a messy desk. I don't know if any of you are like this, where you need to see things. And if you see things, it triggers memory which isn't the best when it comes to your desk, and, but it really works well for like a sheet of paper that can literally, you look at it every day and you can remember all of these key truths in your life. And so, by the way, my messy desk syndrome, Leslie and I have worked on it over the, the years because when something is hidden, when something is filed, I don't see it, I don't remember it. And so we've come up with elaborate systems because Leslie is not a messy desk fan. Ironically, I'm not either. It's not like I want a messy desk. It's just that a messy desk serves its purpose, and that is it reminds me what needs to get done. That pile of paper is very important because it says, hey, Eric, you know, deal with me. And so we've come up with solutions to satisfy Leslie's longings for no messy desk. Uh, at the same time, figure out ways to keep triggering my, my memory. But one of the things that was on that list was this idea of orange juice slash Kool-Aid. And so this was my metaphor, because this is the way it worked. I had these t things all over this sheet of paper. And the statement was, imagine that God's commission to me was to make orange juice. And so I, throughout my life, I had been you know, getting out a Kool-Aid canister, and I'd been taking a scoop out, putting it in water, and stirring it. And then one day I'm convicted by the fact that that actually isn't orange juice as God intended it. It's orange and it's juicy, right? But it's not orange juice. It's not the authentic version. And so what many of us have done, and this is what I found myself doing, is that I would have a wrong movement or a wrong action in my life, but then what I wanted to do is pray over my Kool-Aid and have God transform it into orange juice. 
It's like, well, God, I've given my best. I mean, look at this. I, you know, this is what I'm used to. This is what I'm familiar with. This is what I prefer. Could you just bless my Kool-Aid and turn it into orange juice? I know that that sounds totally ridiculous in all of your minds as you're listening to my story going, Eric, that is so dumb that you would ever do that. However, this is what we all do in various capacities and ways in our own spiritual lives, that instead of doing actually what God asked us to do, we come up with a synthetic chemical version of it, like our own manufactured idea of it, and we say, God, can you bless this? Do you remember Abraham with Ishmael? Uh, it was Abraham's own synthetic version of a promised child. It's something he created in his own manpower, and then he says, God, but can you bless it? And God says, I can't bless that. And uh, he actually called Ishmael a wild donkey of a man, you know, and I was thinking that's sort of what all of our own Ishmaels are like. They're a wild donkey of a solution when God, in fact, created oranges, and there's a certain process you're supposed to go through, you know, whether it's, you know, you peel them and you squeeze them, or you know, you know, we've all had orange juice, right? And so we understand how you get oranges out of there, and there's, there's different ways I'm sure you could do it, but it all involves a squeeze at some level. And that is the origin, the authentic, true origin of orange juice. So I'm just going to show you, you know, the, the mental picture up there. There's some oranges on the left side of the screen and some Kool-Aid, a Kool-Aid packet is what I'm guessing that is, on the right side. I haven't had Kool-Aid since I was a little kid, and my mom didn't even like it when I had it back then, right? I was, it was sort of off-limits. Kool-Aid was just wrong. And it was sort of like in the sinful category uh, when I was growing up. And yet all of us know that there's a distinction between those, but many of us have a hybridized version of obedience to God, too. There are certain things in Scripture that are very clear of how we're supposed to live, but we come up with sort of an Americanized Kool-Aid version of doing it. And then we say, but God, can't you bless that? Everyone else is drinking the Kool-Aid. A return to the true source, or getting back to oranges. Now, I put oranges in quote because that isn't actually what this message is about. It's about oranges. It's merely a picture of saying, let's get back to the real thing. And so this message is actually about revival, and revival is sort of a hard word to even bring up in the church anymore because it triggers various meanings uh, these days. And what I always mean by revival is the old school version of revival and the kind of revival that the church prayed for for generations and generations and would see God move in a mighty way to awaken the church afresh, but to bring it back to what I would say the oranges to scrap the Kool-Aid version of Christianity and get back to the orange version of Christianity. The real, authentic thing where the source is the Holy Spirit, the power of God, and no longer the power of men and their artifice, their uh, contraptions, their ways of doing it to be newfangled and hip in a generation, to scrap all of that and get back to the authentic. And that is what in every, gener in every generation, yes, but in every life even, there is a process where we begin to grow barnacles of worldliness or we begin to gain a little weight around the middle of our spiritual athleticism. And it's sort of like a house. We call it spring cleaning. But there is something that happens in a house where you collect debris. 
And if you don't regularly stay on top of it, it collects in a very fast way. And so you oftentimes have to go through this deep cleaning process. And in your mind, you're thinking, haven't I just deep cleaned this? And yet it collects. And ironically, our souls are very similar. That there seems to be a need, just like spring cleaning, for us to have a fresh, deep work of grace in our life to revitalize and get us back to working order. I, I have a, you know, in our, in our main living room, we have one of those uh, air purifiers. You know, it's always working. And it has this light on it that starts out green and then goes to orange and then eventually turns to red. You know, it's like all I've done is exist, and that thing turns to red. It's like, come on. You know, you think you could last a little longer than that. But our souls are sort of similar to that, where there needs to be this cleaning of the filter. And those filter things are pretty cool on these high-tech air purifiers. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're not like the old filters. Now, these are the type you can literally get a vacuum, and, and you can wash them, and they're back to new. I mean, they're like brand new. And that's the way I would sort of liken our souls is that there's a need for revival. There's a need for us to have that filter system taken out and then vacuumed with some good uh, you know, water uh, going through it so that we are as we ought to be, back to our original uh, purpose. This is what God intended. Now let's get back to it. In Habakkuk, we have the, one of the rare sightings of the word revival in Scripture. It's not even the word revival, it's the word reviving. In other words, this isn't necessarily a word that you're going to find in Scripture like God says we need to have a revival. It's a word that we have constructed throughout Christian history to denote something. And that something is very, very important that is in the Bible, but it is fascinating that it isn't the normal uh, word in the Bible. So here's what it says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I don't know that many of us are going to build a good, solid doctrine and revival out of that one passage. However, the desire that you see expressed in Habakkuk is still the desire that I would say I have today, and that is revive your work in the midst of all these years of my life. I need this to be restored, this to be returned to its original condition. What you intended for it, I want to get back to that. What is revival? So here's my description of it. There's all sorts of weird, newfangled ideas on revival today. People will have a tent and call it a revival meeting. It's always funny when someone declares that they're having a revival before the revival is there. That's always a funny statement. I could call this a revival meeting. However, I hesitate to do that because the work of revival is something that God does. It's not something that I do, but it is something that I participate in. So here's what I'm going to describe it as. When something regains its original life, passion, excitement, and enthusiasm. And many of us have, have tasted this, if not all of us in here, that there are seasons of strength in our spiritual life, and then there's subtle decline. And it doesn't mean that the subtle decline meant you went into moral failure, it just means you've grown a little dust, like a little uh, cloud of, uh, of dust or a, like, a, what do you call those? They're, I remember in Toy Story, it got stuck to Woody at one point in time, a dust ball or something like that. Uh, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, he had it stuck to him. And it's like what we collect. If you hang out in a closet, you just sort of, you know, collect them. And that's what happens to us, and there needs to be a freshness 
a restoration back to the way it was. What is a revival in the body of Christ? When the body of Christ, that's us by the way, just in case you're wondering, is brought again to its proper intensity for, obedience to, and purity in Jesus Christ. Now, if any of you recognize that definition, that harkens back to a series we took our alumni summits uh, through a couple years ago. We were dealing with this very theme. And it was a very, very significant time. And these three things, I think, have tremendous impact today for us to freshly lift them out. When the body of Christ is brought again to its proper intensity for, obedience to, and purity in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is unpack each one of those individually. The first one is intensity for Jesus Christ. So if we were to just lift that out and separate it out, not have three things, but just one, it would be when the body of Christ is brought again to its proper intensity for Jesus Christ. There's a certain heat index that is supposed to, you know, be like dee 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 dee, seen in our life. We're not supposed to grow cold. We're not supposed to be lukewarm. I think there's supposed to be some heat that is that is brought to the table in our souls in regards to this person known as Jesus Christ. And yet that heat index can oftentimes grow cold if it's not tended to. And it's like a fire that if it's not, if you don't stick fresh kindling on it, it's going to go out. And so you have to stoke a fire. You have to blow upon a fire. And to maintain a fire, there is an action that is needed. And the same is true in our soul. So intensity four. Imagine uh, that I'm going to give a quote for our soul to meditate upon in each one of these. But here's the quote that goes with intensity four. This is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, all my days, all my talents, all my resources, all my time, all my life. When you are seen clearly, that is your conclusion. When you are blurry-eyed and you, you have too much emphasis on the world and on the cares of this world, on the comforts of this world, on the satisfactions of this world, then ironically, the purposes of Jesus or the, uh, the levels of givenness to Jesus oftentimes are what take a direct hit. And so when we take our eyes off the world and we fix them where they're supposed to be and we throw out the Kool-Aid and get back to the orange when it comes to our focus and we see Jesus for who he is, for what he's done, for what he deserves, well then it naturally moves us into a proper response again. It's like, hey, we're getting orange juice out of this. Well, what does orange juice look like in the soul when it comes to the proper focus? This Speaking of Jesus, speaking of who he is, he's high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. All things are beneath his feet. He has done it. He has accomplished it. Is he not worthy? Is he not deserving? Has he not purchased my my body and my blood? Has he not given up everything to gain me so that I could be a house for his glory? If this is true, then what is the proper conclusion? This is worthy of all my energy. So I just want you to ponder that for a second of how much energy you have in your life. Have you ever noticed that there are times in your life where you have a tendency to curb in your givenness to things so that you can preserve yourself? And oftentimes that's your energy levels. And oh boy, do I know this one. 
In other words, I've had seasons of such intensity that when I exit that season, I can become hypersensitive to things like meetings. Boy, I can have a bad attitude about meetings. I don't know if any of you have ever gone through this before. Where it's just like, uh, so Eric, could we, whoa, sorry about that. Did you see let me catch it though? That was impressive. Could we have a, another meeting this week? Meetings. What's funny is when I'm in the meeting, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with the meeting. It's the idea of meetings. They just sort of absorb life and they take up life. It's like email. Email, who invented that crazy thing? If there's something that I could you know, shoot in the foot, it would be email and it would just disappear from the earth. And it doesn't mean that I don't actually think it makes life a little easier to have email. It, it does, it does. But it, there's a certain emotional antagonism that could come to sort of some of these things because they have a tendency to absorb life. And what's interesting is we have a lot of energy in life, but when we get into that self-protective mode, we can oftentimes do that towards God too. And so you're driving down the road and there's that one character on the side of the road that could use some help, but that's gonna take energy. It's gonna take something from you. It's going to demand that you dig a little deeper, but you're rather exhausted right now. And this is what I mean by when you are revived, when you throw out the Kool-Aid mentalities in your Christianity, you get back to the oranges, you want to stop. And even if you are depleted, because you know that God is going to supply for you and you know that there is something even more, it's called the depths of grace that you can tap into when your human energy fails you, you have God energy backing you up. And when you know that, you will never fear. It's sort of like having the generator when your power goes out. But we have a generator, so it's really no big deal. It's like that, the super generator known as God. It doesn't matter if the power goes out in our life. We still have power, which means I can help that person. I can do that meeting. I can answer my emails today. Even though I feel thin, I have something that will undergird me. So God gets all my energies, not just part of them. This is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, that's a, that's a lot of hours, by the way, if you think about the word all, and then sit, you know, put it next to the word hours. That means all day long, you belong to Jesus. There isn't a time, have you ever heard the term ungodly hour? As, as far as I know biblically, there's no such thing as an ungodly hour, even though we all know what hours those are, right? Those hours belong to God too, which means, I know this is a little scary, but that means he can wake you up in the middle of the night and put a burden on your heart to pray. For some of us, and I, I only experienced this when we had little babies, and it was the first time I awakened to the fact that God owns all my day, and it's like, well, not now. I mean, what, can't you, God, can't you just knock out these kids, you know, so that they sleep all through the night? What is the deal? Why do we have to get up? And it was very interesting because you realize how you hold on to a certain dimension of your life, and God needs to touch it and say, actually, that too. All your hours, this is worthy of all my energy, all my hours, all my days, all my talents. You know that many of us have, well, all of us have talents in here, but many of us equate those talents, that is what we use to make our money, our career. And so we put a value on them. And so if someone wants to access our talents, they have to pay a certain price. And that's part of you know, how we make it and how we survive and how we create income, and I get that. However, to freshly take our talents and set them in God's hands and say, God, you can use this however you want. 
And that means if you want me to splurge it and give it over here where I don't even charge someone for my great talent, so be it. In other words, it's his, it's not yours. First and foremost, I don't think God's against business and, and creating a price tag on you know, the exchange of goods or talents and services. I don't think that's the, the answer. However, for us as the believer, we set it in God's hands and we say, God, how do you want my life to be lived? For you, I want to live out of oranges as opposed to Kool-Aid mix. I want to do this out of you as my source. All my talents, all my resources, all my time, all my life. This is what's happening when we are being revived spiritually. When we allow the Spirit of God to open up our air purifier, to take out all these justifications and you know, rationalizations and diminishments of the call and scrub them down and vacuum them off and rinse them off and get them back to the way it originally was. You are not here on earth to self-preserve. You are not here on this earth to figure out a way that you can be famous. You're not here on this, word to, world to, on this earth to just figure out how you can make a good living. You're here on this earth to bring glory to Jesus Christ. That does not mean he won't give you wisdom of how to live in this body in such a way where you are not a burden on society and you actually can bring in an income and you can be a generous person and support your family and give outside of that. Sure, God can give wisdom to that, but let's get down to oranges. Why are you here? You're here for his glory. And let's remember that first and foremost and not get caught up in all of the other things that life holds. Let's make sure we remember that and let all of the other things flow out of that. So the second thing that revival is going to bring about is an obedience to Jesus Christ. So the first one is an intensity for, the second one is an obedience to. So here's our quote that can go with this one. Whatever he asks me to make right, I will. Whatever he asks me to confess, gulp, I will. Whatever he says needs to go, it will. Whatever he says needs to be added, it will. Whoever he asks me to share the gospel with, I will. And wherever he asks me to go, no matter the suffering and the difficulties that may attend the action, I will go. Now, as we see and stare at things like this afresh, we all know it's true. It's not like this is some novel thought that we've never had go through our head. If you've hung out in this chapel and heard messages in the past, this is just sort of our diet, right? And isn't it funny that even though we have this diet, that we need to hear this? And it seems like maybe we even need to hear it more than we do hear it. Because for whatever reason, we come up with subtle justifications. The Puritans called, called it makeshift rationalizations. I always thought that was a really funny term. Makeshift rationalizations. It's like, well, the reason I don't need to obey that is because of this. And it's a very elaborate scheme that we have come up with. One of the reasons we oftentimes will not confess our sin or the reasons we won't uh, remove something from our life is because we have a special circumstance that we've talked ourselves into. It's like, well, God understands that in, because of my extenuating circumstance with this, I need to add this vice into my life. And whereas God is a tremendously understanding God, he also loves you too much to allow you to find your source in a Kool-Aid packet. All of your source is always found in him. 
And as a result, when we try and manufacture a different solution because of our special extenuating circumstances, we end up playing the devil's game instead of living out the life that God has called us to live. I'm going to read this again, and I just want you to personalize this. Instead of just hearing a message, I want you to allow the Spirit of God to touch you in these exact spots. Whatever he asks me to make right, I will. Whatever he asks me to confess, I will. Whatever he says needs to go, it will. Whatever he says needs to be added, it will. Whoever he asks me to share the gospel with, I will. And wherever he asks me to go, no matter the suffering and the difficulties that may attend the action, I will go. This is what's called obedience. It's a posture of life. You see, you could posture yourself to say, I don't care what he asks me. I'm not going to do it. That's disobedience, which in its essence is the root of sin because it's self. It's self-determining how self wants to live life. But self is supposed to deny itself. It's supposed to give up its right and say, actually, I have an ear for my master. So whatever he asks, my answer is yes. And that is where obedience in the spiritual life comes from. So if God's going to get us away from Kool-Aid and back to oranges, we need to have a reset in the obedience meter where what God asks of us, our answer is a predecided yes. And that's all that's saying. Yes, Lord. And when we get to that and we clean out the filter and we scrub it underwater, this is so freeing as well. At first, when you have a lot of stuff, like when you hear a line like, whatever he asked me to confess, I will, when you hear that line and you have quite a few things you probably need to confess, it's not a fun line to hear. And there's part of you that will wrestle inside. When you are clean and you've confessed everything, you love hearing a line like that. Amen, amen, preach it. It's when you have a load of you know, filth that has sort of gained, you know, gained ground in your soul that these types of things somewhat offensive. You really don't like this Eric Ludy guy bringing this stuff up. However, if we live in agreement with God and we allow him to refresh us and to get us away from all Kool-Aid and get us back, I'm putting Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid needs to be over here, doesn't it? And oranges are over here. Sorry, guys, for those of you that are confused because I always take the good stuff over here and the bad stuff over here. Kool-Aid is over here. For those of you that were wondering, okay, Eric had a little mishap there. Kool-Aid, we need to get rid of the Kool-Aid and get back to the oranges. So we had three things that were a part of this reviving, and that was intensity for, obedience to, and now purity in. So here's our quote for purity in. Search me, O Lord, and know my thoughts. If there be any wickedness in me, expose it. If there be any motive in my soul that is ulterior to your agenda in my life, bring it to the surface that I may get rid of it. If there be any habit that is undermining my singular devotion to you, eradicate it. So this can be somewhat misleading because when you hear the idea of purity and you, you say, search me, O Lord, what you oftentimes infer is that you are the one that needs to do the searching. When in fact, what you need to do is make Jesus your focus. When you make him your focus and you have that intensity for him, Lord, you are what this is about. When you make that your focus, you know that what he'll do? He'll take care of you. And when you just open your life up and you make him your focus, you don't need to make you your focus. 
Have you ever found yourself digging around in your soul looking for filth so that you can get rid of it? That actually isn't what our assignment is, is to find our own filth. God is very, very good at bringing dross to the surface. And when he does, you respond. You don't need to find more dross than he's finding. Just you make Jesus your focus and allow him to be the one that brings the fire to your soul to bring the dross to the surface. And when he does, you eliminate it. You confess it, you repent of it, you address it. And that's part of the furnace, or now I'm at a furnace, the filter cleaning. That's part of what we're doing is we're setting ourselves before the living water and allowing him to wash us. We're setting ourselves before his holy wind to have him suck away that debris. To say, Lord, I just want to live in your presence. I want to see you. I want to be like you. I don't want anything to stand in the way. If there is anything that is standing in the way, please address it so that I can have a clear channel of connectivity with you. I have that illustration of the spigot, and out of that spigot flows living water, and we are like a hose, you know, that attaches to it, our life is. And when we, in obedience, we turn on that spigot, and in flows the grace of God into our life. And that's what a Christian life is. It is a life full of grace. And yet sometimes what's coming out of our life is like a little drip, and we're like, um, I'm sorry, because I, I mean, I'm connected to the spigot, but for whatever reason, it's not coming out. I mean, and, and someone was like, did you turn it on? Yeah, I turned it on. I just went over there and checked. Something's not working. Now, every one of us that lives and deals with hoses knows exactly what that problem is. That's called a kink. And so as a result, if you're good with hoses, you know that there is a kink in that hose and you need to find it. And so you trail that hose you know, along and you find the kink. There it is. And what do you do? you unkink it. And what happens when you unkink a hose? Well, then suddenly that pressure in the hose shoots out. I could get Mike on right here, right in the face. It'd be really fun too. Uh, and however, many of us could see a kink and not address a kink. Well, that doesn't make any sense because then you're not going to have any grace coming out of your life. When God shows you a kink, address the kink. In other words, deal with it. Walk in obedience. And when you do that, there is a reviving that takes place in your soul. It's a refreshment. How does a revival come about? First, there are two key participants in revival. I know this is going to be a shocker. God and man. I, you notice how I didn't include your cat, right? It's just there's two key participants in this, and your cat is not one of them. God is a participant in revival. I think we have that down. And then man is. That's, that's all of us. And I think that is pretty obvious, but it's actually important for you to note this. It's not just God. Because some of us think that it's just sort of a random thing that God brings about a revival. When in actuality, there are two players in this. God is the chief player, but we are also in this mix. The principle of all revivals. Okay, now this is Eric, uh, maybe not at his best, but, you know, in his poetic uh, glory right here, right? When, when God, or God will when man tills. Okay, so when we're talking farming, which is what I typically will use as my illustration when I'm talking about revival, and that's a classic one throughout history. God will when man tills. So there's something that when man starts doing it in his life, then God does something as a result. It's sort of like knock and the door will be open to you. God endows when man plows. God endues when man pursues. See, isn't that impressive? 
Some of you are like, this guy's really good. He should maybe have gone into a career with poetry. Second, there are four key ingredients in every revival. So when men pray, two, when men obey, three, God responds, and four, when the church is activated. Okay, these are the four key ingredients to making up a revival. It's interesting because revival never takes place if men and women aren't praying. So there always seems to be this beginning point of men and women praying. It's interesting, but men and women will not pray unless the Spirit of God is already moving on them. So you could say, well, God is actually the start of every revival, and you'd be right. However, practically, like what we see visually and experientially as humans is we see men and women beginning to pray. That is always what looks like it's the first step forward, and it is. However, we all know that for men and women to pray, God is doing something to get those men and women to pray, right? So we can give God all the credit for this. However, when men pray, and then men obey. You know that you can pray and have God convict you of something and then not do it? But if you're praying and you're in the presence of God and He begins to deal with you, and then you respond, and if that's to confess a sin, if that's to go and share the gospel with someone, if that's some other form of obedience. When we do that, it's interesting, but it's like unkinking a hose. You see, God has supplied all of the life. He's supplied the power of the Holy Spirit. However, there is this process of us coming into agreement with what God desires to do. And so when men pray, and then they obey, then God responds. Now, it's funny to even say God responds. It's like, you could say that spigot responds. Well, the spigot is just dishing out water, right? But there's something hindering the water from flowing. So when that kink gets out, you could say, wow, the spigot really responded to that. It's like, yeah, I guess you could say it that way. However, God desires to give his life. He is inclined towards our benefit. He is desirous to give us mercy, to give us grace, to give us strength, to give us power. It is us oftentimes that have the barnacles, that have the kinks, that have the hindrance points that oftentimes block what God is desiring to do. And then what happens? The church activates. Even in this room, we have had multiple, what I've oftentimes called micro-revivals. I've never actually called them revivals in the classic historic sense because what I've seen in classic historic revival is it doesn't just change an environment, it changes the environment around the environment, which would be like the community. And then that community spreads out to other communities. And I actually haven't seen that as the direct result of what we've seen here. I've seen this environment shut down for multiple days just to focus on Christ, where people are on their faces, oftentimes weeping, crying, calling out to Jesus. We, we've seen this happen at multiple levels, multiple times here in this, uh, this very room. And I've watched it with awe and wonder because it wasn't something I did, right? It's not like I said this one word and every, something just happened. It was something God did. But it seems to be a response to something man was doing, which I'm sure was a response to something God was doing in them to even get them to do that, right? So men pray, God, men obey, then God responds and the church activates. A revival isn't supposed to be a mysterious move of the Holy Spirit. And that could sound like somewhat of a controversial statement. But listen, it's supposed to be the obvious response of a God who has promised and cannot lie. So I call this 
the laws of farming, if you've heard me speak on this in the past, is that a farmer, when a farmer gets a crop, you could call that a miracle, and I would say, in a way it is, that you could put a seed in the ground and bury it and have it produce a plant that then produces fruit or vegetable is remarkable. It really is. You could call it a miracle. However, it still falls under natural law. We understand the process, even though it is a miraculous process, that needs life to even happen. It needs something like God to even sponsor it in the first place. You know, that's why Eric isn't a, would never be a good evolutionist, because you know, I know that the source of all life is God. And so I know that that cannot happen without something beyond just you know, the natural realm to progress it. So when I say that revival isn't supposed to be a mysterious move of the Holy Spirit, I'm likening it to something like a crop that you get when a farmer plows a field and then sows a field and then weeds a field and waters a field and then keeps it weeded and watered and fertilized. And what would happen if he did what he was supposed to do? What you would see would be the results of following and heeding the laws of farming and you would get a crop. And the same is true for us. If you want to prosper in your walk with God, it's not just like, oh God, I hope that you one day look upon me and favor me to pour out your blessings. God's like, my blessings are ready to pour out. If you do this, I will do this. It's a promise. And so when you deal in the realm of promise, it's different than what we oftentimes associate revival with, which is random. It's like a random move of grace in the world. It's like, whoa, what just happened here? Where you don't look at a field or a crop, you know, we have a lot of those around here. You drive by a cornfield and go, whoa, what just happened here? In fact, you see a, a, a farmer preparing the field. You see him sowing it. You see him watering it throughout the season. Then you see it growing. And the same is true for us. When a farmer tills, when a farmer tills, plants, waters, weeds, waters, weeds, waters, weeds, and waits, 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 and waits, then comes the life the harvest, the bounty. It's not mysterious. It's God's built-in response to man doing as God has told him to do. A farmer's obedience to the laws of farming equals a great harvest. So now I understand that some of you could say, well, what about the tornado that comes through? Yes. Okay. Now let's remove the tornado that comes through and destroys the crop. Okay. Or the hailstorm, you know, something like that. And let's just say Average crop on you know, some plot of ground in Iowa. If that farmer tends to it according to the laws of farming, he will actually gain a product. And it's not shocking, and there's better ways to do it than others. There's best practices in this thing called farming. However, he can yield a product if he heeds the laws of farming. If he sprinkles Kool-Aid all over his field, he probably won't yield a harvest because what he is doing violates the laws of farming. Probably even, I can just imagine that if we studied it, Kool-Aid kills soil. Can't you just imagine that? It's like uh, Coca-Cola cleans oil slicks. Have you guys heard that one too? Yeah, so it's like some of these things that we drink are rather interesting in their effects. James 5, 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? So farming's been around a long time, and farming is part of the language of Scripture. 
And even though I didn't grow up as a farmer, I have two granddads that were farmers, so you know I'm somewhat connected with farming, right? I, you wouldn't want to put me in charge of your field, I'll, I'll put that, even though I'm giving a very impressive message about farming uh, today. You'd be like, this guy may know his stuff. Well, don't be fooled. I, I don't think I would probably be a great farmhand, but uh, I could learn. It's, it's potential. But what the statement in Scripture in James 5, 7 is, is be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, there is something that we're waiting for in our life, and I could call it the coming of the Lord. Now, most of you, when you hear of the coming of the Lord, you think of a capital C coming. You think of the final, you know, trumpet call and the coming of the Lord in the clouds. And you would not be incorrect, but you would sort of miss a lot of other comings. And that is the working of grace in our life in our moments of need. Sort of like waiting for rain when you're a farmer. If you were just waiting for one rain in all of history, that's different than what the farmer is waiting for. They're waiting for an early rain and a late rain. And they have to be patient in the process. They didn't have, I guess, the irrigation systems we have uh, today. And so there was a, it, was, it was a pretty challenging situation, I guess. You were totally dependent upon God to bring rain. And so their job was to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so for you in your life, say you're in a dry patch, say you're in a challenging stretch, one of the things that you are preparing for is what we could call the coming of the Lord or the arrival of the grace, or if you're a farmer, the arrival of rain, or you could even say the arrival of the crop. And this is something you can't manufacture, but you have a role. You have a part to play. A farmer is not a passive observer. A farmer is engaged. The waiting of a farmer is a very active waiting. You know, because we, we think about waiting as like sort of like sitting in a chair and twiddling your thumbs. But look at a farmer described as a, a one who waits. What are they going to do? They're going to prepare a field. They're going to sow a field. They're going to weed a field. They're going to water a field to the degree that they have water, right? And then they have to wait. But while they're waiting, they're still tending. They're still watching over this. They're still weeding. They're still watering if they have water. In other words, they're actively engaged in knowing that only God can bring forth the crop. But they know that as a good farmer, if they are patient and consistent in their job, they know what will come out of that soil. If they plant corn, you don't grow raspberries. They know that as they plant righteousness, as they plant hope, as they plant truth, as they plant faith in their life, they're going to see a reward of that, a fruition of that in their life. So Mark Rothameo is the idea of being patient. And this is what it's going to say to the farmers, be patient. So it means be patient or to be long-spirited, to bear or to suffer long, to be long-suffering, to have long patience. Isn't that a funny way of saying it, to have long patience? To be patient, patiently endure, to be of a long spirit, not to lose heart, to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. I can't speak for all of you, but I feel like I could in a general sense. There's probably deep yearning that you guys have in here, but maybe for different things. Some of you, it might be a restoration, like a deep pain that has been there for a long time, and you just want it lifted. It's sort of like Paul's thorn. For some of you, it might be a circumstance, maybe a financial thinness 
where that financial thinness has been there for a long time, and it is like a thorn in a different way, and you just want it to be passed. You want this season to end, and you want to push a fast-forward button. You ever had a desire to push a fast-forward button in your life? And for some of you, I mean, you could, you could fill in the blank of what it is. It could be a relational thing in your life. It could be a physical thing in your life. But it is something that you're walking through that you want the end of. And this is where Makrothameo comes in, is that God actually didn't intend us to fast forward through things. He actually intended us to gain full benefit in the passage of time in and through what's called Makrothameo. In other words, we are supposed to go through like a farmer this season. I mean, could you imagine how nice it would be? At least it seems nice. If we just plant seed and then boop, there it is. It's like, wow. I think of the Jetsons. Do you guys remember the Jetsons? They have like this little thing. They stick it in the microwave and poof, it turns into a whole meal. It's like, wow, that is a really nice feature. And that's the way most of us would love to be able to prepare our food, right? Yet there is something in and through process. Something in and through the engagement with trial over a passage of time that actually is what gets the good stuff out of our life. It's part of what restores us and part of even what God intends to bring about the full purpose. If we could say the oranges instead of, or oranges instead of the Kool-Aid. That oranges are actually found in that process. We want to skip it, and we can't figure out why God would ever bring us through a long process, and yet God is giving us something, if we will receive it, that will maximize the benefit in our life. So James 5.8, you also be patient. Not just the farmer, but you. You also be patient. Establish your, heart for your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It can be tremendously encouraging to those of you that feel like the coming of the Lord seems way, way off in the distance. And may I, not the capital C coming, but just the coming of grace into your particular situation right now, which might feel like a really challenging, weighty situation that you really wish would just go away. And yet God is going to come and he's going to give you precisely what you need in that situation. So, Makrathameho, be patient. Have a long spirit, a long patience. God has given us the grace to go through these things to maximize and get all the value out of this. But most of us lose the nutrients found in this passage, in this, in this passage of time because we want to rush it and we want to fast forward. And oftentimes we're grumbling and complaining our way through it instead of having Makrathameho. And enduring these things as a farmer, knowing God is going to produce fruit through this. I know it. I know God's not just having me wait for the rain and there's just not going to be rain. I know God didn't have me plant that seed just because I could, he wanted me to stare at dirt for the rest of my life. As a farmer, Makrothameo, you can go through that dirt season. You can go through that hot summer knowing that God will bring a harvest in due season. Your job is to trust him. And that's what the Makrothameo is. Starizo. So back here it says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. So what we're supposed to do when we are establishing our hearts is we're fixing ourselves. We're starizo in the Greek. 
which, let me define it for you, it means to establish or to make stable, to place firmly, set fast or fix. It means to strengthen or make firm. It means to render constant, confirm one's mind. It's very, very important for us to have a refresher, and this is a revival aspect. When you are feeling a little off, oftentimes it's because your gaze is not on Christ. It's not on His Word. And so you're focused on a storm instead of the one who's in the boat with you. And so it, it's a really good idea to refresh that, okay? It doesn't mean the storm's going away, but it just means right now, hey, who's in the boat with you? A, you're all in different boats, we're all in the high seas, and, and we're like, hey guys, let's remember, who's in the boat with us? And then I could see one of you mumbling, Jesus, you know, it's like the right Sunday school answer, right? It's like, but is he? Do you believe he is? And some of you are like, he's asleep, which is the way we feel. However, our God is exactly what he should be right now for us. He is aware of our circumstances. He is in perfect position to help us. However, you're going through a testing right now. And God wants to see if you're going to be fixing your gaze on winds and waves or on him. I've always wondered what the disciples should have done in that situation because they're, they're you know, they got the accusation of oligopistos, having little faith, okay? By the way, that wasn't a compliment. Oligopistos, that means oligo is little and then pistos is faith. And you don't want to have oligopistos, you want to have pistos, Sounds Italian, doesn't it? Pistos! And so what should they have done? This is my mental picture for it. Could you imagine Peter, when he sees Jesus sleeping and the boat's filling up with water, says their lives were in jeopardy. These are fishermen who are scared on the seas. That means it must have been pretty bad, right? And Jesus is supposedly sleeping in the midst of all this. And imagine Peter saying, hey guys, hey guys, stop, stop. Like, Peter, we're gonna die. Listen. He's the Messiah, right? He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's sleeping. I say, let's lay down and sleep. Now, I don't know if that's what they were supposed to do, but that's at least the closest guess I would have because the Bible doesn't answer that question. However, what should we do in this situation? You're in a boat and it's you know, on the high seas and your boat's filling up with water and it doesn't look good and you want out. However... Do you trust your God? And this is part of what revival is. It's returning to the oranges instead of the Kool-Aid. Bailing water when you have Christ in your boat is Kool-Aid. That doesn't make any sense. You have the one who is in control of winds and waves, and you're trying to solve the issue in your own human strength. And so set down the bucket, freshly look at Jesus, I'd say, okay, all right, I know that there's a storm around me, and my human instinct is to break open a Kool-Aid packet right now. That's what I've been doing for time immemorial. That changes now. I want to get back to the way that I actually do see my challenges solved. Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. My life is in jeopardy apart from you, but with you, I have salvation. You are my champion. And right now in this circumstance, I just want you to know that I trust you. And even if this storm goes on for years, I'm going to lay down beside you and we're going to get a good nap together. I want to rest in Christ. 
James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. Isn't that just a great statement? It's a, it's a line that if we just lifted out and stuck on our refrigerator and focused on for a while, it would be a good one for us to chew on. We count those blessed who have endured. In other words, when we look back on history, we see those that didn't lose their head when the high seas were whipping up and when the boat was filling with water. Those are the ones that we esteem, and those are the ones that were blessed. Those are the ones that found a crop. Those are the ones that saw the reviving of their spirit. Those that endured, which means they had makrothameo, they held on with confidence and with faith and kept their focus on the Most High God in and through the challenge. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You do see that when a farmer waits, he gets a crop, right? Did you, did you see that? You see what happened with Job? Job waited, he endured, and then he got a crop. Do you guys see that? And that's what James is saying in and through this. He's saying, hey, let's look at the example throughout all of history. When anyone actually holds to God and keeps him as their focus, they're always blessed. How do we find a revival right here? Let's heed the simple laws of farming. 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 16. Now this is, you know, sometimes you feel awkward as a pastor repeating this. This is like the classic uh, passage that seems like everyone has preached on. Every pastor has preached on at least seven times, you know, uh, in, in their first seven years of, of ministry. And yet, what, what do I do? Not preach it because of that? It's sort of like John 3.16. It's like, sorry guys, but I'm actually going to use John 3.16 today. It's God's word. There's a reason why it has been such a simple enunciation throughout the ages of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this too is just an amazing statement. Second Chronicles 7. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. So Solomon has built this temple for God. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I'm calling that the laws of farming right there. That's the promise of God. I don't care what you're going through. Is it pestilence? Is it disease? Is it drought? If you are facing any challenge, and this is speaking to a nation, but the truth is still there for us as individuals too. It's, it's the principle of the kingdom of heaven, whether you have a personal farm or you have a national-sized farm. It makes no difference. This is how God cares for the land. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. It's interesting because we are that house now. And this is the function of this house. 
And we could say this land or my marriage could be considered a land, my family could be considered a land. If you have a ministry or a business, that could be considered part of your land. And if that, if that land has a devourer on it and there's something that's hindering that land, whether it's drought or disease or pestilence, what is our solution? Our solution is to come back to God, not try and deal with it in a human manner, not to try and use Kool-Aid to solve the issue, but to actually go back to God as the source. Say, okay, God, I realize that the pattern for me to have restoration, to get this filter clean again, means I need to humble myself. I need to pray and seek your face. I need to turn from the pattern and the behavior that is actually causing this in the first place. I can't just ask for your blessing to take all of my mess and just turn it. I need to repent of that which is creating this problem. I'm digging into the Kool-Aid canister and scooping it in every day, and I need to stop doing that. If I am deliberately going against your word, that is on me, and I need to change that, and I need to turn from my wicked ways. Then God will hear from heaven, and he will forgive my sin, and he will heal my land. Not just on a national scale, which this is definitely true, and America could definitely use this message today, but it starts with us on an individual level and on a corporate level here, just locally. This is where we start. We don't cluck our tongues at a dying world around us. We actually allow the Spirit of God to address us. I want our lives to be producing great fruit. Hosea 10, 12 says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. There is a role that a farmer has, even though it doesn't seem like it's much, right? We can't bring in the crop. We can't, like, make it grow. But we can break up fallow ground. And this is something that revivals throughout the ages have always talked about. They'll always quote this one statement. Break up the fallow ground. You need, like, that old-timey preacher voice. Break up the fallow ground. And they always quaver a little in their voice. And yet, that is what we need to do. There is a hardness that can settle onto our soil, and it almost gets tamped down by the circumstances of life. And as a result, underneath that soil is, is what could grow, but we need to break off that crust. And to do that, we need to freshly come before God and humble ourselves. And we need to acknowledge sin. We need to acknowledge weakness. We need to acknowledge that in and of ourselves, we can't do this. We've been turning to our own human abilities instead of God's ability. So listen to Oswald Chambers. This is excerpted from My Utmost for His Highest, January 25th uh, day. It's, he named that, or someone named it, Leave Room for God. Uh, Galatians 1.15 is the scripture reference associated with it. But when it pleased God. So here's what Oswald Chambers said. As workers for God, we have to learn to make room for God, to give God elbow room. We calculate and estimate. We say that this and that will happen, and we forget to make room for God to come in as he chooses. Would we be surprised if God came into our meeting or into our preaching in a way we had never looked for him to come? Do not look for God to come in any particular way, but look for him. That is the way to make room for him. Expect him to come, but do not expect him only in a certain way. 
However much we may know God, the great lesson to learn is that at any minute he may break in. We are apt to overlook this element of surprise, yet God never works in any other way. All of a sudden, God meets the life when it was the good pleasure of God. Keep your life so constant in its contact with God that his surprising power may break out on the right hand and on the left. Always be in a state of expectancy and see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. Breaking up the fallow ground. So I'm going to go back to the old time revivalists, and I'm going to get a list for us. Sort of fun. Uh, it's a list of what are called the sins of commission and the sins of omission. I think I start with the sins of omission. But that means things that you omitted from your life. There's things that you're not doing. Isn't that a funny thing that it could be called a sin because you didn't do it? As opposed to most of us see sin as things we did do that were wrong. And those are called sins of commission. And so what I wanted to do is just stick them up on the screen and have us freshly allow the Spirit of God to press and to break up some ground in our life. Because I really desire a harvest in our life. So we'll start with sins of omission, or things omitted from our behavior. Now, I didn't even come up with this list. This is like the old-timey list. Ungratefulness is the first one on the list. Isn't that an interesting one just to start with? That you haven't been grateful and you've omitted something from your life. And if you realize that you have not been grateful, well then, repent. Make that right. And what else should you do? Start being grateful. In other words, when you see things, when the Spirit of God touches things, throw out the Kool-Aid packet. Don't do it your way, do it God's way. You see, when you do it God's way, it creates the avenue of grace into your life. You will produce a harvest. Number two, lack of love for God. Now, some of you might say things like, how do you love God? I have zero emotion. I've, I've had this said to me many times. What that oftentimes stems from, when you have just this sort of dead weight in the middle of your chest, known as your heart, and you don't feel, it's oftentimes because something has deadened that heart. And usually what that is is bitterness, resentment, which started with unforgiveness. And so actually your issue might not be lack of love for God, that's just how it's showing itself. But it's really unforgiveness or bitterness or resentment. And if those things remain, they actually destroy your land. It's a root system that will spread throughout it and bring a deadness to the soil where nothing can grow. And so as a result, if we're going to break up fallow ground, we need to allow the Spirit of God to touch these things. Neglect of the Bible. You ever had a season where you just don't have the time you used to have? And then that season of neglect turns into a couple seasons or years of neglect. You still know the Scripture and you can still repeat it, maybe better than anyone around you, which gives off the ambiance of being connected to the Scriptures. But when we disconnect from God's Word, we are inherently vulnerable. And every single one of us knows that there's a life source. There's a love letter waiting for us that connects us in intimacy to our God, so don't neglect it. If you're neglecting it, it's harming you. God gave you this opportunity. You have a privilege that very few people on earth, there's closed countries out there that dream of having a Bible. You have one. Care for it. Know it. Number four, unbelief. Number five, neglect of prayer. 
Number six, neglect of the means of grace. That one's more challenging to explain. I've, I've had a message in the past called the means of grace, and it's a term we've used. It's actually a Puritan term. But God supplies us what we need for every situation. Every situation, he's always already supplied us. Sometimes it's grace, sometimes it's patience, sometimes it's the ability to endure, sometimes it's joy. In each situation, we have all we need. Everything we need for life and godliness, that doesn't mean we're using it. And so as a result, we might be grumpy and in a bad mood. Meanwhile, God has given us everything we need in that situation, so we're neglecting his supply. And we're living in our own Abraham creates Ishmael sort of world where we're trying to solve our dilemma in our own strength, which is proving how pathetic it is with our frustration or irritation, you know, because that's the result, because we can't carry these loads. And God has to allow that to be shown. But why are we like that? Why are you irritated? Why are you frustrated? Why do you feel so thin? Could it be that you have a sin of omission? that you are not doing something that God has asked you to do, which is take hold of the grace that he has given you, to believe that he is enough? Number seven, poor manners in carrying out the Christian life. Isn't that a funny way of saying it? We don't usually talk about manners. But there is a certain honor and a deportment that we are supposed to carry. We represent the king of kings, you know, the one who is all joy, all love. And we've had poor manners in how we've showed Jesus to the world around us. Number eight, lack of love for the people around you. Number nine, lack of care for the lost. Number 10, neglect of family duties. It's a very interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, you could actually do really well, let's say as a man, you could do really well in certain areas of your life, like in your professional career, you could be literally a star. And then you come home and your wife thinks you're pretty bad right? And you can't figure that one out. It's like everyone at work keeps patting you on the back. You just won an award at work, and yet at home, it's like, what? I'm providing for my family here, and yet there's more than just supplying resource or money to a family, and that's a family duty. There is something that is needed, and it's instinctive, and oftentimes, you know, the wife might not handle it much better in that situation by nagging the husband. That actually is creating a... <clears throat> a cataclysmic blow-up uh, in the future, right? However, it's a challenge. When, when, when duties are neglected, it creates a breakdown of what we were calling the land. And as a result, when we return to those things, we say, okay, all right, this is actually my responsibility, and I'm going to carry it. Things start to heal. A neglect of social duties. Isn't that a weird thought to think that we're responsible socially too, like for the world around us, that we're not supposed to just live in our little bubble, but we actually have a responsibility for caring for those around us? I don't have time for my neighbor, but that's how you've been designed. You're supposed to care for this family first, but then out of that strength, you're supposed to care for those around you, and that can be another sin of omission. Number 12, lack of watchfulness over your own life. You know those seasons where you're extra sensitive to everything that's coming in, every thought that's coming in? And then over time, you grow soft and lethargic, and now you're trafficking junk through your thought life. You see, that needs to be reset. You need the filter cleaned afresh. You need to start squeezing oranges instead of unloading packets of Kool-Aid into your life. Number 13, neglect to watch over your Christian brothers and sisters. Bless you. 
Number 14, lack of self-denial. So those are sins of omission. I'm not sure how well you just fared throughout that. That was a pretty uh, intense list, and I'm sure it could go a lot deeper. Don't just think, oh, if it wasn't on the list, I'm not responsible for it. It's, that's God's business. I'm just giving a starter package just so that we can sort of allow the, the soil in our heart to be prepped. Sins of commission, things done, acted out that were not of the nature of Jesus Christ. So these are behaviors that we had, not behaviors that we didn't have, but behaviors that we did have. Number one, worldly-mindedness, where we're thinking upon the things of the world instead of the things above, where we're, we're deducing according to a pattern of thought in this world, where we're socially conscious more than we are heavenly conscious. Number two, pride. Number three, envy. Number four, speaking with harshness and spite. Number five, slander. Number six, levity. Listen to this definition for it. Taking sinful behavior lightly. It's, come on, it's not that big of a deal. It's like that right there is called levity. Isn't that just a fascinating statement that that is a, a danger in your soul just to try and even say that's not that big of a deal. Number seven, lying. Any variation of designed deception. Number eight, cheating. Number nine, hypocrisy. Number 10, robbing God. Number 11, bad-tempered. Number 12, hindering others from being useful. What you do with that list is sort of up to you. I just want us to be freshened in our intentionality towards producing orange juice instead of Kool-Aid. I don't like false church. I don't know about you, but it's one of the most disgusting things that exists on earth is plastic church, where we play act church. And yet all of us, including myself, are prone to that behavior unless we stay sharp before the Spirit of God and before His Word. In other words, just because you hate it doesn't mean you won't do it. There's a lot of things I hate that I'm very prone to do. You see, what we need to do is make sure we keep our focus on the one who actually solves the dilemma in us and moves us in a different direction, and that's Jesus Christ. So let's do that today. Let's take our gaze off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, off of our boat filling up with water, and let's fix our gaze on Jesus Christ, the author, the finisher of our faith. Father, I ask that you would work a miracle in us as a church. I pray that you would break up fallow ground and that you would cause us to have that intensity for, that obedience to, and that purity in Jesus Christ afresh. That there would be a renewal of our intentionality to live fully, completely, wholly for you and to not hold anything back. Lord, I pray that just like we saw in Chronicles, that we would humble ourselves, that we would pray, that we would seek your face, that we would turn from our wicked ways so that you could work wonders in our lives and heal us. Lord, we want to produce the fruit of righteousness. The only way to do that is for you to have the helm. Lord, we love you, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. 
In Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.